Father, we delight in what was done last night in Michael's ordination. We delight in Bishop Craig and Annette being here and celebrating with us. Lord, we delight in what you have built in this city over the last few years. I pray today as we consider our, your word that our hope would be in you. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be short today because at the end of the service I actually want to give Bishop Craig some time just to talk. To tell us about his heart for this city and this church. Because this church was the fruit of his prayers and his dreams from a long time ago. And so I'm going to be short. But in the meantime, we're going to continue in Hebrews. And for those of you who weren't here last week, we started Hebrews last week, tracing it with the lectionary. Anybody who spends a little bit of time around me would realize that I love the overlooked minor themes of the Bible. If you wonder what I'm talking about, just think about how many times you've heard me talk about the wilderness, or about food, or about water. I love the overlooked minor themes. This passage in Hebrews 3 offers us one of those overlooked minor themes. That is the theme of the house of God. Look at these first verses again with me. Hebrews 3, 1-6. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. You read just that part of this, and you hear about Moses' faithfulness in the house of God. Jesus' faithfulness is the son over the house of God. And you would be forgiven if you thought that it was referring to the temple. Because it sure sounds like talking about the temple or the tabernacle. But the end of verse 6 says something astounding. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's what I want to talk about this morning for a few minutes. We are his house. Like I said, an overlooked minor theme. It shouldn't be overlooked. It shows up in other places in the New Testament. Consider Ephesians 2. The women of the church are going through Ephesians. And in 2.19 it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's not just Ephesians, though. We see it showing up in 1 Peter 2. And y'all might be familiar with this passage. 1 Peter 2, where he talks about us being built as a house, a temple of the Lord. And he even goes so far as to call us living stones in this temple. It shows up in other places. Perhaps the most fully developed is in 1 Corinthians 3, 
Listen to Paul. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then listen to this. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Like I said, an overlooked minor theme, but one that should not be overlooked. There's this picture that's painted in the New Testament. The idea that God is building a house to live in. A temple for his very spirit. And that the foundation of this whole thing, the cornerstone, the thing that holds it all together, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The confession that he is Lord, Messiah, Son of God. This house is being built by all those who labor in the gospel. Who proclaim the word of God to others. And weirdly, the people of God are the physical structure of the house. The stones. The drapes on the windows. The beams. The stained glass itself. They're being built and woven and constructed together to be a house for God's glory. He says, my spirit dwells there. It's my temple. The image doesn't come out of nowhere. This weird image that blurs the lines between family and building, between house and household. You could go lots of places in the Old Testament and talk about it. But one of the clearest is from 2 Samuel 7. Where David is king, longs to build a house for God, a temple that God will live in. And he wants to do this. He's gathering the materials to do this. And he says, I'm going to build a house for God. But God, the prophet Nathan, looks at him and says, no, you won't. You can't. There's too much blood on your hands. I'll let your son do it, but you may not. But then what is strange, he says, you want to build me a house. Instead, I will build you my house. And he's referring to the family and the lineage of David from whom the Messiah will come. But you get this weird blurring. Are we talking about a people or are we talking about a building? This is the image that all these New Testament passages picked up. That the people of God are the house of God. As Hebrews 3 says, we are that house. We are the building that God is building. At this point, you may look at me and go, that's strange. This is an odd metaphor. And why are you spending your precious few moments stuck on it? The short answer to that question is because Hebrews 3 is stuck on it. And we're stuck in Hebrews 3. <laughs> but I want to tell you that it's more than a metaphor. Whenever we approach a metaphor, it's useful to actually acknowledge that there's some metaphors that are bigger than the reality they describe, and some that are smaller. Let me give you an example. If I take a test in school and say, I went down in flames on that test, I'm comparing my test to a plane being shot down. And the reality of the plane being shot down is far more significant than the thing that I've described, failing the test. 
But there's also metaphors and images that are far smaller than the thing they describe. Let me give you an example. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is an image for the relationship with Christ in the church. And he says explicitly at the end of it that the mystery is great, but the true great mystery, the one he's truly referring to, the greater image, is the relationship of Christ in the church. In other words, the image, the metaphor, is smaller than the reality. When we approach images that God gives us, images of spiritual realities, we're almost always dealing with metaphors or images that point to something that's so much greater than them. This should begin to rework the way we think about the water of baptism or the bread and wine of the Eucharist. All these physical images where the reality is so much greater than the thing. And if we find ourselves interpreting them as less than the image, we've got it all backwards. But lest I be distracted, back to the house. Imagine with me Solomon's temple. Imagine the cedar planks inlaid with gold, the perfectly crafted stones, the priests and Levites bustling around outside, the choirs of Levites singing the praises of God, the basins of water being doused on people for cleansing, the smoke from the incense and the fire, the glory and the beauty of these golden cherubim. Imagine that glory and then realize that what the Lord is saying is that that is the lesser. The greater image is His. This. Amen. His people gathered together. All of the glory of the temple pales in comparison to the glory of the people of God gathered. The Holy Spirit in their midst, laid on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, the work of the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, building it up. People joined together, knitted together, hewed together so that they are this glorious thing that God says, I delight to dwell in that. That's the picture that we're given. It's glorious. It's beautiful. I don't have time this morning to explore it fully. But I want to say that I love that this passage came up in this season. It's been a hard couple of years in our world. It's been a hard couple of years. There are people in every congregation, and this one is no exception, struggling with all sorts of things. There are people who have lost friends and neighbors and relatives. There are people who have seen their work disappear. There are people who are just blanketed by nameless discouragement. I don't know why I can't get out of this. There is so much that seems dark and oppressive. It's tempting in those moments to put our eyes down. Nose to the wheel. Keep going. Straight for one more day. I'll survive. The writer was writing to a group of people in Hebrews who were also in the midst of a hard moment. So hard that many were considering packing it in, throwing away the faith. And he doesn't tell them, just put your nose down and keep going. Instead, he lifts their heads up and he says, do you see how great a thing you are a part of? Do you see this? <coughs> you, not just them, but you. You are being built into the house of God, fitted together, joined with one another, built into a temple for His glory, the Holy Spirit dwelling in your midst. Whatever the feeling of darkness or oppression that lies on these last two years, the reality is beyond our comprehension. God is doing something beautiful. 
He's building a temple out of his people, a temple where his spirit will dwell. And he says, and this is more beautiful than the temple of Solomon, more glorious. It was my purpose from the beginning, this glorious temple where I would live. My point to you all, your life is not just the grind and the darkness and the oppression. Your life is just not the struggle and the hardship. Your life is not just all of the things that go wrong and trying to hold it together one more day. You are a living stone, as Peter says, a part of the temple of God. There is no such thing for you as an ordinary day. You are being fashioned for His glory, knitted together with the other believers, built into something that the world will rejoice to see in the end, that angels are longing to see the fulfillment of this. The feeling of heaviness is not the true story. God is building something beautiful. It's beautiful. It's exquisite. It's exquisite. We can run down a million rabbit trails of application, but I don't have time to do it. I'll just mention it to a few in passing because I can't help myself. <laughs> if we are being fitted together in this house, think how important it is that we gather together and be together and encourage each other. We are not on our own and we are not meant to be on our own. If we are being fitted together in this beautiful house, we suddenly might understand what happens when life is chiseling off our rough edges. Because our stone might need to be reshaped to fit with perfection in that wall. If we're being fitted together into a temple for God's glory, imagine how significant is it that we be pure. We are the house of the Holy Spirit. You see all the places we could go with this, with this employment. I would encourage you all to meditate. Let it sink into your heart. It's beautiful. I just want to close, though, with the thought that comes at the end of this description. Because it would be inappropriate to read verses 1 through 6a and not 6b. The writer of Hebrews says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. It's a caveat. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting. And it's hope. This phrase might be disconcerting or discouraging. After all, how many days do you say, I just don't have a lot of confidence or hope? How do I hold fast? How do I hold fast? It's important to recognize that the Bible doesn't treat hope like some emotion that's outside of our control, something that we're passively subjected to. Instead, hope is where we choose to place our hope. Hope is where we choose to bank it all. Hope is where we choose to say, this is the thing that will matter to me. The writer of Hebrews is telling you, this is what is true. You are a member of the house of God. This is beautiful and glorious. And so let that be your hope. Don't bank it on being the perfect parent. Don't bank it on being the best employee or having the most successful business. Don't bank it on getting pleasure out of life and having things go your way. Bank everything on the apostle and high priest of our calling. Bank everything on what he has done for you. Hang on to that. 
because you are being built into his house. He is the foundation, the cornerstone, and he will hold us secure. And so when the days are dark and overwhelming, bank it all on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let everything rise and fall on him, and you will find yourself secure in his temple. Amen.